Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I figured it was medieval lit, not advanced evil. How hard could it be? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. This is a whole new level of nerd. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week we have an interview with author Meg Wolitzer. We love her new novel, The Interestings, which came out this spring and dives into the lives of a group of teens at an arts summer camp and how they navigate their talents. Or lack of talent. And love lives. Or lack of a love life. All the way into adulthood. And our intern Claire will tell us how she learned some superhero skills at her summer camp. But first, Nerdette contributor and my pop culture spirit guide, Rebecca Polson, has created a cocktail inspired by the interestings. And just a hint, if you're terrible at verbal instructions or ounces, feel free to follow along on nerdettepodcast.com. We posted a set of how-to gifs there. You mean gifs? Gifs. Oh man, I can't have this fight again. Anyway, you can learn more about how to make Rebecca's campfire old-fashioned on our website. She promises it will taste like boozy childhood. Boozy childhood, yeah. We're going to do a little campfire old-fashioned, which is excellent and stiff and sweet and smoky, and you only have to dirty one glass to make it, which I think is thrilling because I hate doing dishes. So we're going to be using Bullet Bourbon, which is one of my favorite bourbons because, just quick boo school, the two major types of American whiskey are bourbon and rye. And the major difference between bourbon and rye is how much is made from corn and how much is made from wheat. So bourbon is mostly corn and has very buttery, sweet, cornbready qualities, whereas rye is made from wheat and is going to taste like more like rye bread, except for, you know, booze and not bread. But it's going to be a little spicier. So Bullet kind of goes right by the middle. If you only want to buy one bottle of whiskey, it's a great choice because it has as much wheat as a bourbon can possibly have in it and still be called bourbon. So we're going to be using Bullet Bourbon and Sailor Jerry Rum, which is a really nice medium-bodied Caribbean spiced rum with vanilla and like cinnamon and burnt toffee notes to it. It's going to give our cocktail a little bit of sweetness. And we're going to be using a small batch chocolate bitters called Scrappy's Bitters that I thought was really fun for this drink because it's very nostalgic. It's not a super like rich, dark, complicated chocolate. It tastes like a chocolate Easter bunny your mom bought on sale at Rite Aid. It's made from organic cacao nibs, but it's very sweet and very light. So we're going to start with an old-fashioned glass, an old-fashioned glass or a rocks glass. They're the same thing. They're the kind of glass for you Mad Men watchers that Don would be drinking out of, not Roger. We're going to just place one plain sugar cube, and you're going to put just a little soda capful of club soda on top of your sugar cube, and that effervescence is going to break that sugar up and kind of make a simple syrup right in the glass. 
so we're not going to go through the, all the trouble of making a batch of simple syrup for our little campfire old-fashioned. Two generous dashes of the Scrappy's chocolate bitters. Then if you have it, you want to take a nice big two-inch cube of ice. You can buy the little silicone ice trays on Amazon for like eight bucks. They're awesome. They're totally worth having. They'll just make your life a lot easier. If you have a cocktail that you want to drink slowly because they don't water down your drink nearly as much and they're really easy to stir around. And so you've got your sugar, your bitters, and your ice in your glass. And then you're going to pour in an ounce and a half of the bullet and just a half an ounce of the Sailor Jerry. It's not a lot, but it's just, it's going to add a little bit more depth, more tropical spices, and it's going to make your cocktail a little more summery. Run your spoon around the side of the glass, around the ice. If I count to 40 is generally when I'll be done mixing in old fashioned. And then to garnish it off and really get us that smoky flavor that's going to kind of cut the sweetness and add a little bit of complexity to the drink and really give it that great campfire taste. We're going to do a flamed orange peel. So you're going to cut about a three inch strip of orange. You can use a paring knife, hold it with the orange side facing away from your hand. The pith is going to face into your hand and you're just going to run your flame over the orange side of the orange peel just a couple of times. And that's just going to warm the skin of the orange up, and it's going to make it easier for the orange to release the oils. It's not actually the peel that you're flaming, it's the oil that comes out of the peel. Think of it almost as if you're like oiling your flame, then you're flaming your orange, because you're not actually going to move the flame at all. You're going to hold the flame steady over your glass, aim your slice of orange at the lighter and you're just going to give it a good squeeze and you should get like a nice little flame ball and you're going to run your orange peel around the outside of your glass and then insert it and it'll give your campfire old-fashioned a really great smoky flavor. That was Rebecca Polson, who gets people drunk professionally in New York City and nerds out about booze and programming. Hence the instructional gifs on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. The flame ball orange peel part looks really cool. You know, I haven't tried this cocktail yet, but I did buy those ice trays. So, Trisha, anytime you're ready. Oh, most definitely. But you're going to have to do the light the orange on fire part, because I'll set my hair on fire. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. My mom had instilled in me since I was little that because my hair is kind of crazy and frizzy... I wasn't allowed to play with fire like even sparklers on 4th of July. So I could only have a sparkler on the 4th of July if I dunked my head in the pool. So my hair was wet. So maybe it wouldn't catch fire. Okay, so we'll only let you make this cocktail if you dunk your head in a pool first. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So we both read and loved Meg Wolitzer's new book, The Interestings, this spring. And then both our moms are reading it now. And they love it. My mom just said to me on the phone yesterday, don't you just feel like you know these people? And it's really true. Her characters are deep and her prose is addictive. So we were thrilled to get a chance to sit down with Meg and talk about the book, Finding Your Talent, and the Magic of Summer Camp. Well, it's a novel about what happens to talent over time, and it really started because I went to a summer camp in the summer of 1974, and it changed my life. I met these really cool, interesting kids. You know, it's about that moment in your adolescence when everything changes and you don't go back. I think that's a really interesting concept. Just sort of in general, when it comes to adolescence, you end up having so many big feelings, and it can be so difficult to figure out where to put them and how to express them. And often your parents aren't the ideal figures to be addressing those with, I think. Often, you say? No, of course they're not. I mean, you need your cohort. I mean, it's that moment, really, in teenagehood that I wanted to capture. I think that 
everybody's life is really not what they thought it would be. I mean, that is just sort of the truth about life. It's also the truth about a novel that you would write. It's the truth about a child you would give birth to. It's the truth about everything, because I think that most things come into the world through a sort of grandiose fantasy, which is something I sort of talk about in the book. You know, you imagine your life is going to be a big thing. And I mean, when you're young and you're backpacking through life and you're always, always trying to sort of save money and do things the cheaper young person's way, you know, we kind of like did that for a long time because reflexively we thought of ourselves as those young backpackers, but of course you're not. And there is a moment when you realize, you know, I just sort of want to preserve some kind of sanity and quiet and gentleness around myself so I can do my work. And you never really expected that when you're young. You just didn't think about that. So when you were a teenager at camp, what did you think that you would be doing at your age now? I thought I would be sort of in the arts. I have to say that my mother never once said, oh wait, that won't work. I credit her because I had the sort of chutzpah to try to sort of do it and it did actually sort of work out. So how's the acting career? Oh, did you see my latest film, Last Night at Falcon Point? No, I'm... (laughs) The acting career stopped career. It stopped at 15. You know, I just love the experience of being in plays. I really even like the part afterwards where you go out with your friends to the diner and talk about the play endlessly. Oh, that moment when Gary did that. You know, and it's only important to you. It's only important to you. And that's what's so sort of beautiful and wonderful about it is you're creating these little worlds. I mean, that's what life is. I mean, it's about worlds within worlds. And I think that adolescence is one very powerful one. When was the moment when you realized not just that you wanted to do this, but that this is what was your thing? That summer at camp was like the first step, but then it really gelled when I went away to college. And it's the first time that I'm away from home. It's just so, feels so adult for the first time. And you're alone and you feel sadness and you feel all these feelings in stark contrast. Do you think that some of it is the internal sense that the art that we made at 15 and we're really proud of, we wouldn't dare show anyone through our 20s, but then maybe again later in life we can appreciate it more? Do you find that about your own work? Yeah, I mean, it's also relative. I don't usually look back at my work, although I sold my first novel in college. And I'm very proud of that novel, but I haven't read it in a really long time because I like to maintain the idea that I would still be proud of it. But yes, you know, you need to have the freedom to be bad. Not everything has to be professional. Not everything has to be good when you're young. I mean, things have changed so much to the point that everybody now needs to sort of be slickly good at everything. I mean, to some degree, the internet changed that. Because if you look at the way anybody can make something that looks kind of good, that was completely different from when I was growing up. I mean, you did things by hand. If you had talent, you could see it. If you didn't have talent it wasn't there. Whereas now there's so much to sort of enhance everything you do. You know, what is it? Auto-tune? You know, I mean, there's everything to sort of make you feel vaguely talented. There's a line in the book, there's a larger point really that's sort of out there in the culture, which is that if everything is good, nothing is. But the fetish on talent, on being better than average, on being gifted, I mean, is so strong now in a way that it wasn't when we were growing up. Is your parenting, how do you sort of nurture the things that kids sort of maybe obsess about, nerd out about, and funnel them into things that will be useful for them. We talked to, we had a girl call in and tell us that she was obsessed with X-Files, so her parents sent her through a forensic pathology camp. My older son was so much his own self, and he was so passionate about so many things, and he was so list-based. I mean, he like said to me when I was young, it was like he was obsessed with baseball, and he said, 
what's your favorite team? And I said, I don't have a favorite team. He said, all right, what's your second favorite team? You know, like, this is the kind of thing I'm dealing with. You know what I think you do? You show your kids your passions. It's like you don't act like everything's the same because they want to see that you're a person and you have passions. You're not there just for them. Kids are such narcissists. My younger son, who's now graduating from high school, he got into Scrabble and he like was really good and he had an ability to see anagrams and it just sort of came about and we would play together and then we went off to these competitions and he was like in these big competitions and he won money and uh, that was really fun and, and I know that it was about like language even though I didn't say now you see that you're getting language from this. I'm always curious what the atmosphere is like when you take a kid to something like a giant Scrabble competition. You know we see a lot of terrible reality TV shows about sort of stage moms or dance moms or this other Scrabble moms? No, Scrabble actually was pretty great. He had done chess beforehand. Chess, I think, is scarier. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, which I love. But Scrabble just sort of like, there were bad kids and good kids. You play in teams, which actually is great and it makes it kind of collegial. That's what, one of the things I loved about it. It sort of became about friendship. And I wrote a kid's book, actually, about kids playing Scrabble called The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman as a response to sort of seeing that world. Um, there probably are Scrabble moms, absolutely. But the adult Scrabble world is really obsessive. And there was that fantastic book, Word Freak, you know, that I love. And that's like the ultimate nerd book. That world is very specific. I think kids' Scrabble world is much more uh, diverse. Could you talk a little bit about your process, what it takes for you to produce a work like this and then figure out when you're ready to commit to the next project? When I teach, I say to students, and this sounds a little glib, but I'll explain what I mean. If they're writing novels, get down 80 pages. And I say 80 pages because if you're writing like 100 pages and then you decide to put it down, you kind of feel, oh my God, I've given so much time. I can't turn away from this. So you stay with it like a bad long marriage. You're in it, you're with it. And then you have 200 pages and you've wasted your life, you know, and you just have to die. But if you have 80 pages, here's the thing, you can feel proud because that's a lot of pages. I mean, that's like a really big deal. That's a, a massive pile of pages. But you also could put it away feeling I learned something from it and I didn't screw myself. So then what you do, what I do even at the 80 page mark, the lovely thing is to be separated from technology if you can. The moment when you can print it out, take it away, even also be separated sort of from your usual writing place, which is, you know, in my home, like on a bed. I don't even have a desk. I just work on a laptop on various soft surfaces. I live in New York City to go to a coffee shop, have a little ambient sound in the background, and look at what you have. Really not the grandiose fantasy of what you thought you had, but what at 80 pages you really have made. What have you wrought? And you look at it and you deal with it and go, oh, I see, I wanted to write a novel about the Boxer Rebellion, but it's actually a novel about a marriage. Okay, so this is my novel about a marriage. And now how much more marriage-y can I make it? So I sit there and I'll really go over the lines with a very kind of cruel pen. And there's something about almost the sort of handicraft of kind of getting in there with a pen as opposed to a computer that I feel makes it better and I really recommend it.
do you tell your students about the state of publishing right now? You know, it's hard for writers out there. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendously difficult time. We're seeing these incredible changes in publishing. I think the major pitfall is really not recognizing when something is good versus when it's bad. But there still is the sense, I believe, that there's a need for and a love of story. And I think that you wouldn't be a writer unless you really felt so compelled to do it. Thanks to Meg for talking with us. Her new book, The Interesting, should definitely be on your summer reading list. We've been talking a lot about summer reading lists lately. Especially with Lauren Chulgin, a friend of Nerdette and WBEZ's morning news producer. She says after being a history major in college, flying through grad school, and starting a new job, it's only been in the last couple of months that she's remembered how much fun reading can be. I totally get what she means. I spend so much time consuming tweets and blogs and news and all that stuff that I forget that slowing down to read a book is a totally different and wonderful experience. So we decided to ask Lauren for her top picks of what should be on our summer reading list. She says Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by Robin Sloan is a must-read. At first, you're like, okay, where can this go from here? Like, he got this job at a bookstore, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be like some, you know, back-to-the-old-days type. No, no, no. There's a crazy adventure. I've read it, too. It's one of my favorites this year. And Lauren's lending me her copy so I can get started soon. You had me at 24-hour bookstore. You'll hear more summer reading list recommendations from Lauren soon on Nerdette. And we want to hear yours. Your homework this week is to call 312-600-5638 to tell us what should be on our summer reading lists. Oh, and one more little bit of homework. You have to head over to nerdettepodcast.com and check out a recording by Jeff Cohen. He interviewed his two daughters, ages five and three, about the haircut one had just given the other. Hat tip to our pal Becky Vivi for introducing us to this interview. It made the rounds a bit online last year, but it's totally worth listening to for the first time or again. You can find a link at nerdatpodcast.com. And lots more musings about stuff we're nerding out about all week long. Like those awesome cocktail gifts by Rebecca. And here's a sneak peek for next week's episode. When friend of Nerdette Megan Murphy-Gill interviews her amazing Greek stepmother Maria about why she loves Game of Thrones so much. Who would you say are the best characters I love the Starks. I love the Starks. And then it's Khaleesi. I want to see what is going to happen there. Khaleesi, in actuality, she is the queen of the Seven Kingdoms. And what her brother put her through, that little shit, he sold her. So he can get the kingdom and he become a king. He sold his own sister. Lots of people have been telling Meghan to watch Game of Thrones, but it's her stepmother Maria, whose passion for the show is pretty self-evident, that finally convinced her. Turns out our intern Claire had a pretty interesting summer camp experience, too. One where she learned, like the characters in Meg Wurlitzer's novel, that not everyone gets to be an artist forever. Especially a circus artist. Especially if they spend seven years at circus camp and never learn to juggle. I did trapeze. I did tightrope. I did tumbling. I did... They tried to teach me how to juggle, and it never stuck. (laughs) I can't juggle. Wait, so you did fine with trapeze, but juggling is what really threw you off. Seven years. Yeah, it never took. Who goes to circus camp? Like, a lot of theater nerds go to circus camp. This is a theater nerd thing, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a lot of theater nerds, and then a lot of, like, people who like gymnastics, but, like me, were too tall. (laughs) So, gymnasts who are too tall and theater nerds. Tall gymnasts and theater nerds. Okay. But does it feel like a secret superhero power to be able to do some of these things that seem, I mean, yes. I would I would die. If someone was like, trapeze or die, I would just die. At first, like, <laughs> I'm definitely going to die. Like, how am I? I'm supposed to, like, grab that thing and, like, flip around. I'm going to die. But then after, like, the second time you try it, you're like, dude, I'm, like, flipping around in the air. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You are kind of, like, flying. So tell me about your tiger skills. 
my tiger skills? Yeah. You know, like, you know, like the tigers. Well, no, I didn't go to Siegfried and Roy camp. (laughs) (laughs) It's different. Oh. I feel like there's elephants and tigers at the circus. Yeah, the ones that PETA pours red paint on. Yeah. I went to PETA-friendly circus camp. (laughs) Full disclosure, there's no circus in Alaska, so my entire understanding of the the circus comes from the Disney film Dumbo. Dumbo. (laughs) Yes, it's all Dumbo. No, there were no elephants. There were no live animals. Actually, one kid brought their hedgehog to camp one time, which like blew my mind. To juggle it? No, just so everyone else would be jealous that they didn't have a hedgehog. And it kind of blew my mind because I didn't know you could own a hedgehog. And I was like, what? It was really cute. It curled up in a bowl. Do they send you out into the community? Are there like state fairs where you're doing weird things? Fun fact. So, well, we had like recitals. And so like I did that. But there used to be this show on the Disney Channel called Circus Schmirkus. <laughs> I've heard of this show. Yeah. You're lying. No, no I thing. have heard of it. I it's never watched it, but I remember hearing about it. And it was about a circus that was all like kids. And I think like the oldest one was 18. That was like my goal. I was like, I'm going to be in this circus. Really? I really thought so there was that, a that time, was like going to be my thing. There was a time in your life where you thought that was I your... was going to run away and join the circus. I really, that was like a... And it was like, for a while, a viable option. For what while was that? <laughs> From like the ages of 13 to 15. Sure, yeah. Everyone else at 13 and 15 thinks they're going to be a professional athlete or astronaut or something. They haven't well, quite figured out yet. My It was like kind of an athlete, but it yeah. was... The sport was circus arts. <laughs> So I want to know about the moment that you realized you weren't going to be a circus performer for the rest of your life. Yeah, it was sad. No, it was just a bummer because like when you're doing circus stuff, it's like super fun and goofy and you're like, oh, I'm in the circus. This is cool. And then I was like, oh, I have to like grow up and have a real life and go to college and have a real person job. So yeah, when did you come to that conclusion? Like what was the process of realizing that it was it kind of when I went into high school? I was like, I can't keep going to circus camp. Oh. Yeah, it was sad. Was there a lot of having to clarify for people the difference between a circus artist and a carny? Because yeah. I feel like yes. when I hear circus artist, I think, yeah, like a subway person is a sandwich artist. You mean you're a carny. <laughs> yes. Well, and also I think people automatically thought I meant like I wanted to be a clown, too. There was that. It was like either people thought, yeah, I was like a carny weirdo or they thought I went to like clown college. Has anyone ever asked you about the tigers? No, actually. So that, was, that was the first ignorant But I feel like that's a tiger related question less you've got. Ignorant, <laughs> ignorant question. Thank you. Because, like, yeah, there's animals at the circus, so yes. Yeah. All right, Trisha, I think it's time for us to go make a campfire old fashioned. Okay, but I gotta go dunk my head in the pool first. All right, that's it for today. Many thanks to Meg Wolitzer for talking with us. And to Rebecca Polson. And our intern Claire, who we need to congratulate on her promotion to Mr. Manager. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, I'm Mr. Manager. Well, manager. We, we just say manager. Thanks for listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Throw us a few stars if you're feeling generous. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. But that would be wicked cool. This is Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.